Looking back at some of the other honors, there's the We Met Caddy Scholarship Fund. You must be very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Uh, that Caddy Fund was organized in 1949, and uh, it has been a source of great satisfaction to me. There's no story that could ever be told that is richer or sweeter than the story of Francis and Eddie. And may your lives be full of birdies and eagles. Hello and welcome to Legacy, the We Met Fun podcast. Thank you for listening throughout our first 10 episode series. And for the final episode, we are thrilled to welcome on Mark Frost, a novelist, screenwriter, film and television producer and director, and most notably in the We Met Fun world, the author of both the novel and screenplay for The Greatest Game Ever Played. Born in Brooklyn and raised in Los Angeles, Mark began writing at the age of 10 and writing professionally at 15. When his family moved to Minneapolis, he worked and studied at the Guthrie Theater during high school and then studied acting, directing, and playwriting at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. After college, he moved back to Los Angeles and began his career in television, writing episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man. From 1982 to 1985, he joined the writing staff of the acclaimed NBC drama Hill Street Blues, earning an Emmy nomination and a Writers Guild Award. Soon after, Mark began collaborating with famed director David Lynch in 1986, working on three film projects before they formed Lynch Frost Productions and created the legendary television series Twin Peaks. Serving as co-executive producers, Mark and David won a Golden Globe, a Peabody Award, and the show earned 17 Emmy nominations. Mark then began his publishing career in 1993 and wrote three novels in the mid to late 90s. However, his fourth book and first nonfiction work was The Greatest Game Ever Played, published in 2002. A comprehensive examination of the birth of golf in America, The Greatest Game Ever Played became a national bestseller and was named by the Wall Street Journal as one of the 10 greatest sports books of all time. Soon after, Mark wrote and produced the acclaimed feature film version of The Greatest Game Ever Played for Disney, starring Shia LaBeouf and directed by Bill Paxton. Not one to remain idle for long, Mark also co-wrote two Fantastic Four films for Fox and Marvel, which together have grossed over $800 million internationally. Mark's trilogy about the history of golf in America continued in 2006 with the publication of The Grand Slam, the story of Bobby Jones. And his third book in the series, The Match, about a classic private match played at Cypress Point Club in 1956, became a New York Times bestseller in 2007 and has gone on to become one of the best-selling golf books of all time. Mark has firmly established himself as a dear friend to the We Met Fund, the We Met community, and the families of Francis We Met and Eddie Lowry. He and his wife generously created an endowed scholarship within the We Met program, which provides an award each year for a young man or woman studying art, dance, theater, or film. We can't thank Mark enough for his time, and we couldn't imagine a more fitting guest to feature for the final episode of this first series. We hope you enjoy the conversation, and thank you for listening to Legacy, the We Met Fun podcast. Thomas was a little bit more plugged in over the last few weeks, but I was woken this morning with the news, the, the Writers Guild. I figured that was pretty topical in terms of having you on today and hearing about that. Sounds like a mess. Yeah, I mean, I've been through a lot of these, and this is the first time they've struck in 15 years. But the landscape has changed so drastically, and the profit motive, the need to make quarterly advances every year on these big corps is just driving them to more and more extreme cutting of costs, and the costs have to, from their perspective, come out of labor. The Writers Guild has traditionally been the most aggressive and the most willing to stand up and strike. I mean, that's the way they've been since their inception 60, 70 years ago. Actually, it's longer. It's like 90 years ago. I don't know. We'll see. It seemed like they were saying that a lot of the confusion or anger, if you will, is in the models for these streaming services where they're not open in the traditional sense about the viewership. So it seems like, as you were saying, there's the incentive to have a hit show versus a show that nobody watches. No one seems to really know where those stand. No, and they want it that way so they can control the process. I mean, Netflix in particular had a habit They don't give you any back end at all, which really it's only going to hit if your show goes into syndication or something like it. And that's very rare these days. However, it's depriving you of any piece of foreign whatsoever. So I've always resisted going to Netflix. I just said, I've got in my working lifetime, I have many better precedents to draw from. And the other thing they do is they'll make a contract with you and all the producers and creatives that's only lasts for the first three years. And then 95% of the time, they cancel the show after three years, whether or not it's a hit or not. I mean, it could be a big show and they'll cancel it rather than pay those extra costs because they can just make it somewhere else. 
It's a pretty Byzantine company, and they hide their financials with extreme care, so it's very hard to negotiate with them. We'll be keeping a close eye on that. It's fascinating. I know for you, you're closely tied into it. For us, it's interesting as well. But honestly, Mark, it's really an honor to have you on. There have been few people who have done more for spreading and elevating the story of Francis we met and that we met fun to the world as you have. I mean, researching and writing the greatest game ever played, both the novel and the movie, millions of new people were introduced to the story of Francis we met, which is, of course, one of a legendary figure in American sports. So right off the bat, we want to make sure to thank you for all you've done for Francis' legacy. And we're excited to cover a lot of topics with you, from your upbringing to your incredible career, all the way through to some fascinating projects you're working on right now. But with all that said, with our guests, we'd like to start with a question about your personal relationship with the game of golf. When do you first remember being introduced to the game, and what was your first memory of being on or around the golf course? I played a little bit as a young kid in California, where I was living. My dad had played golf for years when he was living in New York and back east. He told me stories about in the 50s when he was working on these famous TV shows, these live TV shows on Friday nights, they would actually stay up all night. They'd go out, have a few pops, and then they'd go park their car in Beth Page so they could get a tea time at seven o'clock Saturday morning in the 50s. And I'm thinking, I don't remember my dad loving golf that much, but that's how they used to play. I really learned from my mother's father, who was a doctor in upstate New York in the Troy, Albany area, where she was from. Uh, He was a doctor obstetrician in the area, the head of obstetrics at a, a local hospital there who actually delivered me. So he was a Scotsman. I think it was his grandfather who emigrated and brought the love of the game with him. So he grew up a pretty obsessive golfer. He remarried, he was divorced. A woman who was a wonderful golfer, a former golf coach, a women's college, I believe, in the capital area. And she was the perennial club champion at Country Club of Troy, New York, which is a pretty well-known track. It's a Walter Travis course, who I wrote about a good deal in The Greatest Game Ever Played. It's a fantastic layout. It was one of Tom Doak's favorite courses. He actually included it in that great book of his where he went through all the famous courses in America. And he actually came back and did a redo on the course, I think in the last 10, 15 years. So it's a wonderful place to learn how to play. Kind of an inland links with some Parkland elements. So I learned to play there in the summers playing with my grandfather and step-grandmother, who was a wonderful golfer. But they are the ones who first told me the story of Francis when I was probably 10, 11, 12. They didn't have caddies at the course. It was a little too far from the city to support a caddy program. But they told me all about this amazing caddy in the Boston area many, many years before who had set the world on fire and really created what I started to call the big bang of golf in this country when The love of the game became an American appetite, not just one that was imported by working English and Scottish pros at a handful of East Coast clubs. You seemingly grew up in an artistic family. You mentioned your dad. Your dad was an actor, a theater director, eventually a professor, University of Minnesota. Assuming you grew up surrounded by those folks, actors, writers, producers, both L.A. and Minnesota, do you feel it was your natural path to follow those footsteps, your dad's footsteps into the world of writing, directing, entertainment? Was it something you knew you always wanted to do? Yeah, I announced at I think the age of seven or eight that I was going to be a writer. <laughs> I, I My dad had an old Underwood typewriter, manual typewriter, and I was fascinated by the mechanism of the, how the typewriter worked. To me, it was magic. It had a letter on a key and you pressed it and then the letter appeared on a piece of paper. It was fantastic. So I used to do things like just to see it on the page, I would retype stories from the LA Times sports page and I would change the column headings. And this idea of watching these words appear on a piece of paper was a magical process to me. So I'd started to teach myself how to type at seven. I'd always been in love with, obviously, movies and television and seeing my dad on TV in shows that he was in. He worked a fair amount. I think I remember seeing him for the first time on an episode of Perry Mason when I was like six years old with him in the room. And there he is on this little black and white box. It was like mind 
boggling to realize, oh, wow, this is a medium for storytelling. That's what I realized. And I didn't know the word medium at that point, but I said, whatever that is, I want to do it. And then I had this early experience of being selected to be on the Art Linkletter show when I was in first grade. I never really found out if my dad had something to do with that or not, but this is obviously before your time. But Art Linkletter was the big daytime TV show. I think it was on CBS all through the 50s. It was called Art Linkletter's House Party. It had a famous segment every day, five days a week, where he would bring out four kids brought in from local elementary schools. And he would ask questions and get hilarious answers. And it became probably the most popular part of his show. So there I was, I passed the audition, whatever it was, and they brought me in. And I think they picked us up and it was me and one other kid from my elementary school limo and drove us to CBS Television City, where most of television for CBS was being made in those days. And by all reports, I knocked it out of the park. I got a couple of huge laughs. You're brought out backstage. You're sitting on these stools. There's curtains. You hear a murmur out there. And then suddenly it parts and there's a sea of people and there's an applause light going on. And Linkletter is asking you questions, all of which you've rehearsed. And he's got all the answers on cards in case you went up on your line and he could kill his mic and give you a cue. I apparently won them over. And it was a great experience. I mean, I suddenly connected with an audience at six or seven. And I thought, oh, so that's what this is all about. It's like a feedback thing. Okay, I'm starting to get this. And I said, okay, well, I didn't really like the acting part of it. I thought, well, that's a little phony. I'd rather be somebody behind the scenes who's writing the story. And I started following television shows obsessively. And my favorite show from that era, there were a lot of them, was The Man from Uncle, which was a spy show. American James Bond homage, we'll use the, put it kindly as opposed to a ripoff. So I started writing my first novel at 11. It was a spy novel, big coincidence. And I, I actually finished it. It was like 120 pages and it's still in, in storage in my boxes of all my early stuff. So I was off. I just loved the process of telling stories, putting them on the page. You'll get a kick out of this because you guys are sports fans, but I had to think of a good name for my villain in the story. And I said, well, instead of a guy, let's make it a woman. And I named her Chavez Ravine. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. (laughs) Which is the Dodgers home stadium. We lived about a mile from there. So that's amazing. Anyway, there I was at 11. I'm writing a novel that was unusual for a kid that age. There's other teenagers writing novels, Mark. That's one thing. But how does someone get hired? How do you become a professional writer as a teenager? How does that happen? Well, so I kept that up, obviously. And then, as you said, we moved to Minnesota because my dad was getting his PhD and later became a member of the faculty there. So we happened to move to Minneapolis just a few years after this great regional repertory theater, the Jerome Guthrie Theater, I think in the early 60s. And it so happened the second year I was there, they started a high school intern program. What they really wanted, a big production of Julius Caesar, they were going to do, and they needed about 80 extras to make it work. And they didn't have the budget to create positions and pay people for that sort of work. So somebody there said, well, why don't we just start a high school intern program and then we'll get free labor? (laughs) Which we, as kids being semi-exploited, We didn't really clue into that because we were part of this, what was essentially a conservatory program. We were getting trained in theater arts from my sophomore year on, from 16 on. I got over half my credits to graduate at the Guthrie Theater, and I appeared in more than a few shows. And I wrote my first play, and they actually produced it as a high school tour show that toured the state that I acted in. So I was already in professional training at 16. And I went through all three years of that. At the same time, I was playing sports, which was about all I was doing at my high school at that point. When I graduated, there was just one place I wanted to go, which was Carnegie Mellon University, known as Carnegie Tech back in those days, which was one of the two big theatrical conservatory programs at the university level. And I got accepted. So I'm trying to get to the answer to your original question. So first year, I'm an actor, because that's the only position you can come in with. Second year, I'm a director. The third year, I'm a playwright. And the fourth year, I leave because a friend of mine who's come to 
Carnegie, an old former alum, to direct a play in my junior year, had said, well, why don't you come out to California this summer? I could introduce you to some people, other alumni who've graduated. And I said, well, my girlfriend's going to be there this summer. Yeah, I'll hitch a ride with some friends who are driving out to the Bay Area. And I showed up. The friend he wanted to introduce me to was a fellow named Steve Bochco, who had graduated with him from Carnegie, who was already working as, I think he was the story editor on a show called Macmillan and Wife with Rock Hudson at Universal Studios. So I went to have a meeting with Stephen. I'd been there a grand total of, I don't know, five days. And I walk on the lot at Universal. And it's, at the time, Universal was producing around 32, 33 hours of primetime TV a week. It's a staggering amount, considering there were only three networks and seven nights and three hours of primetime. That's over a third. They had a lot of shows and they needed a lot of talent. And Stephen started introducing me to people around the lot. I mean, I should mention they had these nifty little bungalows where people had their offices. And I come around the corner and coming the other way is Peter Falk in his Columbo costume, smoking a cigar. <laughs> and he goes, how you doing, kid? And I went, holy shit, I'm in. Welcome to Hollywood. Pardon my French. Where am I? I'm in Hollywood. So he <laughs> takes me to lunch at the Commissary Universal. There's Rock Hudson. There's Susan St. James. There's Robert Conrad, who I had loved in the Wild Wild West. And in the corner is Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> this is like my first day on a set. I just sat there watching Hitchcock eat lunch. And then he ate lunch again. He ate two lunches. <laughs> <laughs> I was fascinated by this. I was really lucky. I landed at Universal at exactly the right moment. They were desperate for young talent. Steve Spielberg, as he was known then, was had just started and he was already directing up a storm. I got to meet him at that point. And three weeks later, I had my first job. I mean, Mark, you were clearly very modest, but it's also pretty clear that you were a prodigy from growing up. That became clear. And was there ever a feeling in your family, just knowing that the entertainment industry is famously difficult and unreliable, so to speak, as far as a career path, but it's not your standard paycheck every two weeks kind of job. So it sounds like you got off and running right off the bat. Was there ever any hesitation from your father or anyone in your family for you entering that business or was it a no-brainer? My dad had had a hard time. He never quite made it as an actor at that point. He worked, but he had three kids, family support. So he was doing other jobs. He was selling real estate and he felt he needed to go back and get his PhD and teach because he didn't think it was going to work out for him. So he was always cautioning me. It doesn't work out for everybody. This is like an origin story from sportsman. This is why you have to work twice as hard as everybody else. You have to be twice as determined. You have to be twice as tough and you need the skin of a rhinoceros. Yeah, I had all those things going on in my head all the time. And this is where being an athlete was helpful. I was used to hard work. I was used to training. I was a football and basketball player and pole vaulter and a high jumper. So that was a pretty full sports schedule and in the years that I was doing it. I loved the work and I felt the same about this as a profession. I was going to just attack it. And I was autodidactic. I trained myself. I spent all my time studying movies, learning about television. I mean, I did all of that prep work. And I think it was Bochco who told me that luck is preparation meets opportunity. Well, clearly you handled that quite well because you quickly were writing, certainly in the 80s, and earned nominations for your work on Hill Street Blues. And throughout the 80s, you established yourself as a writer that producers and showrunners wanted to work with. And then in the mid-80s, you formed a joint team with another firmly established industry figure in David Lynch. And at the time, he had made Eraserhead. Famously, he had adapted Dune. He continued with movies like Blue Velvet, etc. And in the beginning, you two worked on a couple of movie scripts, and eventually you formed Lynch Frost Productions, and subsequently, you created one of the most beloved and enduring television shows of all time in Twin Peaks. I know we're skipping over great detail here, but generally, what was it about David Lynch that made you want to create this partnership? It seems like a fairly big commitment to start a production company with really anyone. So to you, did it seem you fed off each other's strengths? What caught your eye about David Lynch? Yeah, we had complementary strengths. I mean, obviously, a writer-director pair is better than writer-writer. I mean, you've got the ability to get a picture greenlit. So we started, as you said, working on a couple of scripts. One famously came within six weeks of being 
the turning cameras on and then the company went under, Dino De Laurentiis' company went bankrupt. So that went away. And at that point, one of our agents, we were at the same agency and they had introduced us. We had hit it off. I think our senses of humor were very much in sync and our attitude toward the business was in sync. And I knew more about TV than he did. And he knew more about film than I did. So we were complimentary in that sense as well. The agent said that ABC is desperate for programming. They'd been a perennial in third place for many years. They'd love to talk to you about a project. So we went over and heard them out and we didn't want to do what they were offering, but we said, we'll come back to you with something. And we came back to them with the idea that became Twin Peaks. It was originally called Northwest Passage. David had spent some time growing up in the Pacific Northwest, and I thought that was a fantastic area for television. No series that I was aware of had ever really been set there. We got to work. We wrote the pilot, I think, in three weeks. I mean, it came together really quickly. We did a lot of talking about what it was going to be, and I brought a lot of novelistic techniques and my knowledge of television and He brought that weird, wonderful directorial eye that he's got. And like I said, our senses of humor. So we were astonished that they said, we really like this. It's really weird. But I think we got (laughs) to maybe tell you to go ahead and do it, to make the pilot. And then the ball started rolling. And before you knew it, a few years later, we were on the air. Mark, Twin Peaks is undeniably one of the most unique, creative, one-of-its-kind type shows ever created. You've got the narrative. It's dense. It's detailed. The viewer has to pay attention to every shot and the camera movements. Otherwise, there goes an Easter egg that you just missed. 30 years later, it's still on best of lists. And despite that success, it was canceled after two seasons after a great run. Obviously, the fan base was dismayed. Do you think Twin Peaks was, to some degree, ahead of its time? Television, the medium for long, in-depth stories, the episodic structure... You're telling a broad story. If Twin Peaks came out today, I guess, do you think you and David Lynch would have had your choice of how many seasons you could have taken that thing? The landscape's changed enormously since then. I had this idea that a television show on network could actually be, in the very best sense of the word, subversive. It didn't have to be cliches. It didn't have to be the fodder that was there to vaguely keep your attention between the commercials. I said, why don't we try to make this so it's like a film? I mean, every episode is a film and people do have to pay attention. And we started layering in levels of detail that was something that I'd always wanted to do. I wanted to do a long form story and effect film a novel. And every chapter is an episode. Do that over time with multiple episodes. Now, I've learned a lot of things about writing for TV, obviously during the three years I did Hill Street Blues, where we were also ahead of our time and doing multiple storylines and stories that carried over between episodes, which was very unusual. But this was a new level of complexity. And I said, it'll either die on the vine or it'll start a brush fire and change the way people think about storytelling. Those weren't things I said out loud because <laughs> I felt like a crazy person, but I just had a feeling that this might land. We got really lucky with our casting. Everything worked. All the crafts on the show were superb. The setting was unusual and fresh. And we also brought this surreal, supernatural overlay to what normally, what was in essence a nighttime soap, had just been literally like a soap opera. There was just no complexity to it. There was no real emotional resonance in most of those shows. And I felt we could do better than that and go deeper than that. So that's where we ended up. It's funny, you brought that up, that novelized television show. It reminded me of one of my favorites from now a decade old, but True Detective, which I know the creator, Nick Pizzolatto, actually wrote that to be a novel. That then became, just as you described, each chapter is an episode. It seemed like Twin Peaks could have been on any of the many streamers now if it had come out. And it was a hit. It would have been a hit now, too, especially knowing with Reddit and forums that people would have gone absolutely nuts, Mark, if it came out in 2013 or 20 or what have you. But one thing that I always thought was very interesting is that your father, who we've already spoken of, he was a respected actor. And when Twin Peaks was greenlit, your father was cast as Dr. Hayward and appeared in many episodes. He was a part of the main cast. And can you speak to the level of pride in having your father work on a show that you wrote and created and produced? Did it feel like the ultimate full circle moment? 
It was exactly that. I had this idea. I had written that character with my dad in mind. I didn't tell David that at the time, but I named the hospital in town, Calhoun Memorial Hospital. That was my grandfather's last name and my mother's maiden name and my middle name. So I was building in these Easter eggs already. And I said, you know who could play this, David? And you should really meet him. My dad was actually in New York at that point. It was on a soap opera. My sister had come right out of her college training and gone on to As the World Turns. And they hired my dad for a year to play a part. So they were both in New York. And I said, meet my dad, see what you think. And they had a great meeting. They got along famously. And he said, yeah, I think he's perfect for it. Let's do this. So yeah, I was able to bring dad back to LA and put him on the show. And it ignited a whole second career for him as a character actor. When his run on the show was finished, and then he was really terrific on the show. He had old school training. He'd always reminded me a little bit of Richard Widmark as an actor. And I felt he had some of that solidity and power that Mark had on screen. And then he went on to do Seinfeld, playing the father of Susan, George Costanza's fiance and almost bride. And so he got a whole other following from that. And then he did a few years on Matlock with Andy Griffith. And he worked all the time. So he had a great run for those 10 or 12 years that they came back before he retired. I took a lot of pride in that, that it was a family affair. My brother worked on the show first as a PA and then as a writer, and that jump-started his career. So that's the way that it tends to work in show business. You hire your friends, you hire your family, and if they've got talent, it'll work out for them. That was a wonderful time period to see all that come together. There's so much to talk about in your career, and we don't mean to skip through. After Twin Peaks, I mean, if I can just say for the listener, you wrote and directed a critically acclaimed movie starring James Spader called Storyville. I know you're very proud of that. Three novels in the 90s, which were received amazingly well, sold as such. You were on top of your profession, especially in genre-specific fiction thriller and clearly supernatural mystery stories. And then out of left field to many, maybe, not to you, you decided to take on a multi-year, deeply in-depth nonfiction book about a young man from Massachusetts. As an amateur, won the 1913 U.S. Open at the Country Club in Brookline. And taking on this story, you brought Francis we met out of the halls of the USGA Museum down in Far Hills and the memories of some devoted golf fans into a little bit more of a cultural awareness. So again, you've done so much for the story of Francis we met. I just want to have the listener understand a little bit about the research piece of it and taking on that undertaking. Talk us through the process of when you started jumping around, going to Boston, going to New Jersey, meeting with folks at the country club who have some historical. Walk us through a little bit more of that and how it came to life for you. Francis made front page news, as you know, across America, and he set aflame the imaginations of young people who were caddying and playing the game. Everybody from Bobby Jones to Gene Saracen to all the prominent pros who were on their way up. That story stuck in my head. Many years later, it came back to me. You want me to tell you the story of how the book came about? It's interesting. I had started my, obviously I'd had a film and TV career, but I wanted to get back to what had been one of my first loves, which was writing prose. And when we decided to do some books related to Twin Peaks, when Twin Peaks was at its apex, I created three books that I farmed out. I didn't write any of them myself, but I, in essence, produced them. And one of them was Laura Palmer's Diary. The idea of tie-in books to B-Series was a real low-end, ghettoized area of publishing. It was usually throwaway books. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, we were the first, Jennifer Lynch, David's daughter, wrote a fantastic book, sort of off an outline that I gave her, Laura's Diary, in the last year of her life. It hit at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It came out as a trade paperback. During this process, I met this wonderful fellow who became my literary agent and great friend, guy named Ed Victor. And I introduced Ed to the game of golf. He had played a little bit as a kid. I used to have a place in Long Island. He lived in London most of the year. And we would go out and play near his place at Long Island. And we got involved with a group of guys in the publishing business who played a yearly tournament. We actually started it with them called the Publishers Cup. It was a Ryder Cup format between people in the business from England and people from the States. And so we were on a flight together 
to, I think, the first of these matches that we were going to play, I think from L.A. to New York. And I told Ed the whole story of Francis we met on the plane. I just pulled it out of my memory and said, you should know this. If you want to be a golfer, here's a story you need to know. And he got this look in his eye when I finished telling him the story. And he turned to me and said, Mark, this is a book. And I said, really? He said, oh, yeah, you have to write this. And I literally got off the plane and called. I found the number for the We Met Foundation in Boston. I got on the phone with Bob Donovan, the then director, a good friend of your guys and a great friend of the fund and a good friend of mine. And I told him what I was thinking and who I was and could I possibly come up and meet with him and maybe talk to Francis's daughters and get their blessing to try to undertake this. And he said, yeah, come on up. I mean, we'd love to see you. So I, as soon as the tournament was over, I extended my stay. I went up to Boston, went to lunch with Bob. I can remember, I can't remember the name of the restaurant, but it was out near where, what was the name of the little town where the library was then located? In Weston. In Weston. So we had a lunch someplace near Weston. We toured the library. And I sat down over lunch and I told him what I was thinking and how possessed I was by the story. And I said, please love to do this with your blessing and the blessing of the family. And I went home and we spoke again a few days later. And he said, yeah, we'd love to have you try to do this. So next thing I knew, I was back on a plane to come back and start my research. And I went two places. I went to Golf House in New Jersey and met with then librarian Ran Jarris who guided me into that incredible resource. And I was like a dog with a bone. I was going to dig this thing out of the dirt like Ben Hogan finding his swing. <laughs> I spent a wonderful week going through their library, taking extensive notes. And then I made another beeline back to Boston. And I went into the depths of the great Boston library and started digging up all the microfiche accounts of the coverage of the open, which was Enormous. I mean, I think there were as many as eight or nine daily newspapers in Boston at the time, in the early teens of the 20th century. So there was a wealth of stuff that I could draw from. And I realized that I had a tiger by the tail. I said, this is the greatest story I've ever heard. It was like assembling a building project. I should back up one second and say, I had worked in documentaries for PBS in the late 70s, early 80s, before I went back to LA. And so I had also a grounding in documentary storytelling. I obviously had a great love of sports and had been a big golf fan, among many other sports that I played and followed. I thought this is another way to change and expand what I'm known for and what I can do. That's always what I was looking for. I was always looking for new challenges, not just to find one thing that worked and then rubber stamp it. That I thought was a creative form of death. So this was a huge challenge. I didn't have a contract for the book. I said, I'm going to write this on spec. After getting the pieces of what they had in Far Hills, what they had at the, we met, what they had at the Boston Library, I then branched out and started talking to people. I met Eddie Lowry's daughter, Cynthia, who had gave me, this was a great piece of good fortune, her dad had written an account of his experience of the 1913 Open. I think a memoir that he ended up never writing, which she gave to me and said, use this any way you can. So a lot of my insight into Eddie came from that. I spoke to a huge number of people who had known Francis. One of them was Ken Venturi. Francis had been his stockbroker in the early 50s when he was working for Eddie Lowry as a car salesman in the Bay Area, which ultimately is what led to The Match, the other book that came out of this. So I was talking to people like that and trying to get this holographic image in my head of specifically the We Met family in Boston, in the United States, in 1913, and the cultural context of what was going on then was fascinating to me. And what I wanted was to place this wonderful story in that setting so that people had not just one of the great sports stories, if not the greatest underdog story of all time, but also understand its historical significance 
in the context of what was going on in the country then. So it brought all of these interests of mine together, and I started just assembling it brick by brick by brick. And then I just said, okay, I'm ready to do it. And I sat down to write it. It took me a year to finish the first draft of the manuscript, and I sent it off to Ed. I did some editing, and then this is a part of the story that isn't told very often, but I mailed it off back to him, and we were going to submit it to publishers. And I mailed it FedEx to him in his New York office on September 10th, 2001. And the next day was September 11th. The manuscript was lost. The FedEx office was hit. It never showed up. Wow. Fortunately, I had a copy. It was a computer file, but everything stopped. I think about a month later, then I sent it out again. And then he started showing it around. And we had a what's called an auction. We had a bunch of houses that were interested in it. And we ended up with Hyperion, which was the Disney publishing arm at that point. And my wonderful publisher, Bob Miller, and a great editor, Gretchen Young, and a guy named Will Schwalbe, who was an editorial consultant there, who had been my first editor on my first book. So it was a great place to end up with the book. It came out a year later in 2002, in that fall. And before we knew it, it was making its way into golfers' hands all over the country. There was just widespread acclaim. It's remembered as one of the greatest sports books ever written. And I feel that I would be remiss if I didn't ask you as a prolific writer a question about your writing process and using the greatest game ever played perhaps as the structure for the general question. I guess it's more literal. You mentioned you spent about a year actually writing the book itself. Is it ever overwhelming when you sit down on day one and you have how many pages of research and notes and things? What is your actual process on day one, week one, month one for feeling like you're actually making progress towards a finished product? Is it just knowing that at the end of a year you need to turn something in or how do you get through day by day? It's an act of willful, ignorant madness. (laughs) You're basically looking up at a mountain and the mountain's not even in front of you. It's distant. And it's a journey, not a destination. That's what you have to tell yourself. And today's journey is today's pages. And I had an outline that I had worked through, and I knew that it was just one foot in front of another. This was my fourth book, so I had done it three other times. And it's not like writing a film script, certainly not like writing a TV script. Those are one-night stands and flings compared to a marriage with a book. You are in it, and there's no relief from it, and you can't think about the outcome. You've got to stay focused on, what am I doing today? You can compare it to any number of large-scale building projects. It's like building a cathedral. You start at the basement, and you work your way up. If you were self-conscious enough to say, oh my God, this is so much, there's so much to do, you'd probably go crazy and quit because it's overwhelming. You've just got to take on this idea of, I'm going to go on a journey. And the journey is every day's work. And a good day is when you end up with pages that you're happy with. I was just a very disciplined writer. That was something I'd learned early on, that this was, a particularly for somebody who freelances, nobody's holding a gun to your head and telling you you have to write today. That's my process. I just put those blinkers on And I say, okay, let's get to the other end of the course. If it's a racetrack, you know you're going to come all the way around. Then you just start trudging. You almost said, all right, let's do a couple more laps. You have other skills. After the success and acclaim for the book, you wrote and produced the movie, The Greatest Game Ever Played. You know, this movie remains beloved, Mark. Often remembered Shia LaBeouf's first roles after his Even Stevens days. Not to mention you had a legend working behind the camera with the famous Bill Paxton directing. An amazing cast and crew. Can you take us back to the production of the film? I especially think your insight into the film and television production is interesting here. What goes into the process of greenlighting a movie like GGEP? Was it a no-brainer due to the success of the book, or is that a struggle to get funding? How did those stars align? We were very fortunate in that it just so happened that Disney, through Hyperion, had published the book. And the guy who was the president of the film division at Disney at that point was a guy named Dick Cook, who became a great and remains a great friend of mine. And Dick absolutely loved this book. I mean, we went in to pitch this. The first process is, okay, you get 
two wonderful producers who were very close friends of mine working with me. You get the script right. Okay, now we have to attach a director, and then we can go out and try to set this up. And we looked far and wide. We talked to a number of people. And then Bill, who at that point I hadn't met, but he'd made a movie with my sister. And I knew all about him. I'd always admired his work. I always said I have an affinity for him. And once you meet him, he's an impossible guy not to like. And in my case, he came to love the guy as a brother. And we went in with him attached and we had our first meeting and they said, let us think about it. And we thought about it. And Bill said, I think I can do better than I did in that first meeting. Can we go sit down and listen to us again? Which was very unusual. And so I said, can we take another meeting with you guys? I know you're mulling it over, but we've had some fresh thoughts. And to their credit, they said, sure, come on in. And we sat down with Dick and a wonderful Disney exec at that point who became the point person on it named Jason Reed. And they came back and said, let's do this. So then the process is, what's the number? How much is it going to cost? What can you make it for? They had, at that point, established a tradition of doing sports movies, a small number of them, but they were all successful. Like, remember, The Titans and Miracle. Miracle, yep. With Kurt Russell, who was a good friend of Bill's. And this is where we brought in a line producer, and my production experience came in handy, and we shrunk the script just a tiny bit, and we got the budget down to around... I think around 25 million for about a 42 to 45 day shoot, which made it in the area where they were comfortable. And they said, okay, cast it and we're going, we're ready to go. And we talked to a bunch of people. We met with a bunch of actors. We were looking obviously for Francis. We'd met with Tom Welling, who was at that point quite famous for playing Superman on TV. Tom was a lovely guy and apparently a really good golfer. Hmm. But Disney said, He's Superman. How is he going to be an underdog? <laughs> He's a big strapping guy. He looks like Brooks Kepka. He doesn't look like <laughs> Francis. And I said, you're right. And then they said, well, we've got this guy who's coming off this kid's show. He's done one movie. It was called Holes that was successful. And so Shia came in to meet with us. He was, I think, 19 at the time and spindly, skinny, a very appealing guy. And he brought a golf bag in with him saying he'd just come from the range, but he was carrying it the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> Only I would notice that, but I said, before we cast him, let me take him out to the range. And it was clear within five minutes that he'd never held a golf club in his life. <laughs> but actors always do this. They say, oh yeah, I can ride a horse, or I can, I can, go, I can do a, that scuba diving scene you need, or I'll jump out of an airplane. So I said, okay, well, we got a lot of work to do, but he seemed willing to try, and I put him into golf boot camp and had him working with two different pros. And within about three or four months away from starting at this point, and by the time we got to it, he had a pretty respectable-looking swing. I said, we already knew that most likely we're going to use a CGI ball and any shot that he had to hit. So he didn't have to get a good result. It just had to look good. And that really helped him because he said, okay, I'll just focus on that. So I think there's maybe one shot that he hits for real. We had a body double for a couple of long shots that we had and a young semi-pro golfer. And he did some of his own putting. He makes that big putt on 17. That was actually a shot that he hit. And then I got to do some really fun stuff like design the golf holes that we were going to build. We looked at the Boston area. It was too expensive for us. We ended up going to Montreal because of the credits that you can get for shooting up there and the, the savings on expenses. And we found a golf course called Kanawaki in western Montreal suburb, built around the same time as the country club, had very similar look and feel. But then we really needed to control that 17th green. And we were only going to be able to get their course, which was unheard of for a club that only has a short season, to give away six weeks of their season. Fortunately, they were a little bit financially struggling at that point, and we offered them a lot of money to buy out the course, which they then were smart enough on the eve of shooting, jacked up the price a little bit because they knew we didn't have any alternative. That was fine. But we needed a 17th green where we could control all the action that was going on there. And we built a couple of fairways in the green in a park in Montreal. We started doing that a couple of months before and I designed the break on 17 
so that the ball, if he hit it over the right area, would track. Remember that long tracking shot? That's a real ball. And it's about a 60-foot putt. And it tracked all the way to the green. And fortunately, I think it dropped on like his third or fourth take. For me, it was great fun because I was able to do stuff like that. I was able to coach the extras on how to behave. We had to cast actors who knew how to swing. I said, that's got to be really the first thing we asked them. And every actor we had was a credible golfer. And we put all of them into boot camp as well. And they all looked like they knew what they were doing. And then we just had the best time shooting I've ever had in my life. It was so much fun. That's fantastic. Going to work in golf shoes on a movie was pretty amazing. That movie came out when I was 11 years old and certainly was beloved by me. I know that my college roommate and I repeated lines from that, especially the scene with Stephen Delane as Harry Varden, when he's talking in the clubhouse at the country club. And we watched that movie all the time. It's so fantastic. So it's funny to be able to speak with you now. And we're skipping ahead a bit, but we'd be remiss if we didn't mention you went on after this to write two movies that grossed over $700 million worldwide in the two Fantastic Four movies you worked on, among many other projects that you had over this time. It includes TV shows, best-selling novels, screenplays, movies. Your career is pretty fascinating, Mark. What is the next big project you're working on that you can tell us about? What's your latest passion? Sure. As I told you at the start of all this, I wrote a few novels, but I was really going to be a playwright. That was what I had studied to be at Carnegie Mellon. I'd worked on that. Even after graduating, I worked a year in television writing shows at Universal, and I said, I don't want to completely give up this idea of being a playwright yet. So I went back and worked in Minneapolis for four more years to give it a go, got a bunch of plays produced, worked at the Guthrie some more, and wrote my last play, I think, in 1979 or 1980, and then didn't write another one for almost 40 years. And I got an idea for a play about six years ago. I had a great uncle who was on my dad's side, who was an extraordinary guy named Will Hassett, who for 13 years had worked as FDR's secretary, Franklin Roosevelt's secretary and speechwriter. He called him his Boswell. He wrote, by his account, Will wrote over 250,000 letters, essays, speeches, fireside chats, knew FDR as well as anybody did. And during the war years, he kept a diary. Whenever FDR had to travel, I was always under a security blackout. And Will was a reporter. He'd grown up as a newspaper man, worked for the Washington Post and the AP, and he covered great stories all over the world, including World War I when he was covering the Navy Department, when FDR was undersecretary of the Navy. So had met then, became good friends. And 20 years later, when he ended up in the White House, this was one of the first hires he made. And Will spent the next 13 years working for FDR, was with him when he died in Warm Springs, he was the guy who gave the first press conference about his dying. He helped organize the funeral. He rode back up to Hyde Park in the funeral cortege in with the casket and with, with Mrs. Roosevelt and was then planning to retire. He ended up then being asked by Harry Truman, who told him, look, I asked Franklin if I end up in this job who should I hire? He said, there's one guy you have to have, and it's you, Will. And so he stayed on for seven years and did the same job for Truman. So amazing guy. And he'd written this diary, which was published in 1958 to great acclaim. It was excerpted in Saturday Evening Post, published all over the world. And he gave me a copy of this book for, I think, my 11th birthday. I'd met him a few times. He died the next year. I kept that book my whole life. And I thought, I really want to write a play. I wonder if there's something in this diary. And I went back and reread it. And I became convinced after taking a visit to the FDR library in Hyde Park that there was something here about their relationship, about Roosevelt's service to this country during the war, the incredible, fascinating family relationships and the relationships with his closest advisors. Will was an eyewitness to it a history that had very seldom ever been written about, the intimate workings of, I think, three most famous administrations in American history. And so I said, I've got a chance to dramatize that and to tell people this extraordinary story. And I've been now working on this play for six years. We've done two staged readings in New York. I've got a wonderful, dear old friend of mine attached as a director who's one of the great 
directors in the American theater. And we hope to have this play get its first production sometime in the next year and then maybe end up in New York on Broadway at some point. It's called FDR at War. Okay. We're talking full circle again on the playwriting and the family component, very similar to when you were young. That's right. So that's the one gap. I had never written a play to my satisfaction. So I said, that's the challenge I want to set for myself now. So that's what I've been doing. Nice. Mark, we have a couple of minutes here. And as we've said, you've elevated the awareness of Francis and Eddie and the fund. Heck, you were on with Rich Lerner during the US Open and you gave us a nice shout out last year. So thank you. You're personally now invested in our We Met Scholars, establishing with your wife, the Frost Family Scholarship, which you earmarked for a We Met Scholar studying art, dance, theater, or film each year. Just want to give you a chance to talk about your pride in your evolving and growing engagement with the We Met Fund, which started when you got off that plane, talked to Bob Donovan, and went from there. Just a chance for you to reflect on the endowment, as well as your close relationship with Dick Conley, who helped bring you out in 2013 with Rich Lerner, Peter Jacobson, Bill Paxton, Arnold Palmer. Yeah. Writing about Francis and getting to know people in the fund and meeting a lot of the graduates, seeing the impact he had had, not just as a golfer. I mean, obviously, his influence there was extraordinary in terms of how the sport developed here, but the personal impact he had on people in the Boston area. That was, in many ways, more impressive to me than what he'd done on the course. And I wanted to honor that, not just with what I was writing about, I wanted to do it personally. I was inspired to say, I'd like to give something back to the scholarship. I formed a relationship with Francis and Eddie, albeit imaginary, but kind of real. I felt like I knew both of them intimately. So this was my way of saying, I'm on board with what you guys were trying to do. It's been one of the great honors of my life, frankly, to fund this scholarship and see every year as we get notes from these great young people who are the recipients, to know that I've helped somebody maybe launch a career in the arts for themselves. If there's any legacy that I'm proud of in my working life, I'd say that's the one I'm the most proud of. And it's a relationship I hope will continue for the remainder of the time I've got left on the planet. So I was overjoyed to do this. And it's something I remain very close to emotionally and even spiritually. I think it's a great, great cause. I so admire everything that you guys have done with the fund over these intervening years. It's been wonderful to see it grow and expand and reach and help more and more people almost every year. Well, Mark, I can't think of a better place to wrap than that. That was beautifully said. And again, we cannot thank you enough for what you've done personally, what you've done professionally, and in some way, taking the time to talk with us today. I know there's a lot of people who are going to be really interested to hear these stories from you. They know the book, they know the movie, they know your work over the years, but it's an amazing career. And we can't thank you enough for all you've done for the fund and for the story of Francis we met. And it's been phenomenal to talk with you today. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. It's really my pleasure.